sip of Coca-Cola. Healthy sip, especially. Mm. Sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I'm like, I should get a Coke. But then it's I never disgusting. do. It is the most horrible thing I've ever tasted. But <laughs> I still drink it because it's like £3 with a meal deal. And I, I live on meal deals and bolognese now. That's all I eat. Oh, nice. Hello, everyone. This is Death by Adaptation Clapper's book club, monthly book club, where we talk about old releases, new releases, uh, books, films, adaptations. And I am your host, Nicolo Grasso, and I'm joined, as always, by the good Ewan Gledo. How are you, Ewan? I'm all right. Tired as usual, but that's that's no change anymore, is it? <laughs> How are you? I'm holding all right. I'm I'm uh, I'm excited to talk about those two books. Um, and it's fun yeah. because I've I've been looking at like we we talk about this every week. Like, why did we pick those two books? Um, <laughs> this is probably the most logical combo we've had because you know, the Evil Loves Dune is coming out in the US and it's come out in most of Europe and uh, Asia as well. And it you know it is a it's a horror film. It's a horror book and it's Halloween. It's the month of spooks, and why not choose a Stephen King joint for that? Can I just say, I hate Halloween. I don't like autumn. And me reading a 1,200-page book on top of Dune in the same month was just... It killed my brain. This is it the really uh, quick and easy read episode, you know? Just those books, <laughs> you pick them up, and you're just done with them. Like, there was, was brisk pacing, you know? Um, it's like a book you take on the train just to read in a half hour. Jesus, I wish. I'm doing that for next month's episode right now. I'm reading the book on the train, um, which is kind of good because it makes the train ride less painful. Because it's like yeah. I read 15 pages and I'm just there already. I'm like, ah, I wish it were longer. This makes the I, reading more pleasant. I commute to work and I wish I had time to read on the trains, but you get really dirty looks from people if you're reading on the train. <laughs> so it's like the public shame of literature is not quite rescinded from Europe just yet. I get the opposite Especially here. England. Yeah. I, I, I try to watch movies sometimes on my lap, on my tablet because I'm like, I don't have time to watch movies otherwise right now. So I'm trying to watch them on the train. But it's always, like, I always get the weirdest people that will sit next to me. So I feel uncomfortable watching a movie. I was watching the Netflix film, There's Someone Inside Your House, where people just get stabbed oh, yeah. violently in the head. And just an elderly lady sat next to me. She was like, can I sit here, darling? I was like, yeah, yeah. Just closed the tab. I was like, I'm listening to a podcast now. <laughs> just Oh, God. I think I listened to 20 minutes of a Conan O'Brien podcast before the train announcement said I was delayed by half an hour. Oh. And then I watched a Noel McDonald podcast episode on Netflix. And I didn't realize downloading that used up all of my data. <laughs> So I had a I had a good one day's commute to work. <laughs> That's it for the date of the month. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, let us start by talking about Stephen King's It. I'm not supposed to take stuff from strangers. Oh, well, I'm Pennywise the dancing clown. Pennywise? Yes, meet Georgie. Georgie, meet Pennywise. <laughs> now we aren't strangers, are we? What are you doing in the sewer? The storm blew me away. Blew the whole circus away. <laughs> Can you smell the circus, Georgie? There's peanuts, cotton candy, 
hot dogs and popcorn. Popcorn. Is that your favorite? Uh huh. Mine too. <laughs> Because they pop. <laughs> pop. 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 You both. You don't want to lose it, Georgie. Bill's gonna kill you. Here, take it. I hate to think that this is Andy Muschietti's first experience as a director with it, Chapter Two. But oh boy, oh man, boy, oh boy, oh boy. <laughs> well, it the novel came out in 1986. Um, it was the 22nd book that Stephen King wrote, 17th under his own name, people like trivia like that. Um, and it's one of his longest books, um, written in the 80s. It has every trope that you know about the man. Um, it's a story that jumps back and forth in time. It is set both in the 80s and in the 50s. It follows a group of young kids at first who then become adults. They live in the town of Derry. And it's being tormented by an evil creature, a shape-shifting creature. It was only called, was, was usually takes the, the figure of a clown called Pennywise, a dancing clown, um, an iconic, iconic character in Stephen King's canon. And, and it's, it's not an easy read. It's not a quick read. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds of pages about exploring this town in the 50s, exploring it in the 80s, following this group of characters as they've grown through time, as they are bullied by others, as they have encounters with it, with Pennywise and its different forms, um, how they try to fight him off as children and as adults. And it's a lot. And Stephen King himself said that he was on coke while writing some of this book. And you can tell because there are just sequences where you go like, Jesus, why are you focusing so much on this description of this dairy or whatever, just this road? And it just keeps going and going. And they're like, when is this going to end? It's like a 70-page chapter. Um, so, you know, the man had a lot of energy in him while writing this. So bless him. And this was already adapted once in 1990 as a two-part TV miniseries. And I don't know if you've seen it, Ewan. Um, have you, have you seen one it? of the many DVDs I own but haven't seen. The only experience oh. I have with it is I, when, I, when I used to watch The Nostalgia Critic, I watched his review of it. Oh, um, and all <laughs> I remember is the scene of Tim Curry laughing. That's, uh -huh. Uh -huh. that's the one that's the one which i mean the Tim is just a, an absolutely adorable person he's a fantastic actor so i imagine it'll be quite interesting it'll be far better than the adaptations we got in modern times well uh, let's just say the movie <laughs> the, the, those two movies shine when tim curry's on screen too bad it's, it's he's barely on screen <laughs> <laughs> like if you've seen a couple of clips of him, those are all the clips pretty much of him oh, um, in the film. And and I remember I remember being quite scared of this because I had some I was like at some cousin's house and they were watching it on TV. I was kind of like, oh, it's a clown. What is that about? <laughs> and it was just scarred by him with the grinning teeth. Um, but you know, to be very short about it, 
it's very bland. <laughs> it's it's a TV <laughs> movie. Like Stephen King has had a lot of those um, because he was disappointed with adaptations of uh, some of his work, like well, most famously The Shining and others. So he decided to take matters into his own hands. And so and every hate. time <laughs> he took matters into his own hands, it was shit. Oh, <laughs> maximum the, overdrive. The Oh god, the Shining miniseries that I think he either produced or was part of as a director or he something. He wrote it, quite it as well. I think. He wrote it. Yeah, mm. that was on Amazon Prime about a year ago, and I remember watching it and thinking he's he's failed to adapt something he himself wrote, <laughs> and it's like that that can be the one credit I give to the films. It is at least an adaptation of the book. It's not a good one, but it is an adaptation. Of the it book. Well, sure is um, <laughs> because, like Tim Curry was was properly iconic with his performance as Pennywise, but you know the rest of it just sucks. And they decided they Warner Brothers decided to reboot it, remake it. Um, and it's interesting that we're going to be talking about Dune. We're talking about the David Lynch version, not the Villeneuve one. But I think what they did with adapting it is much better than what they did with adapting the new Dune. Because they just looked at this gargantuan novel and said, what do people actually like about this? I like the kids part, you know, that's, that's the nostalgia, that's the fun part. You can have the bullying and the humor and all of that with Richie Tozier. So like, you know what? Let's just make one movie. Let's call it It, two, two hours and 10 minutes long. And it's just about the kids. Boom. Get the director of Mama involved. Um, get a lot of other people. I believe, like this, the the people who wrote the script on this. You have someone like Kerry Fukunaga, uh, who recently made. Uh, we talked about last week, last month actually, with Jane Eyre. Um, he directed that adaptation, and I think he was supposed to adapt it before he just had creative differences. I don't know, but he did work on the script with other people. Um, and that's what we got, 2017, one of the highest grossing horror films of all time, if not the highest grossing film of all time, horror film, R-rated. Um, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on the first part, um, Gyuan, because <laughs> we'll, we will talk about chapter two, because they were like, you know what, <laughs> they just put at the end of the movie, you go like, this was a, an all right movie, maybe, who knows, and then it just goes, it, chapter one, it's like, oh, if you want more. They gave us more. <laughs> we'll get to that. We'll think, get to um, that. I, I mean, if, if I compare the two, it chapter one is far, far superior. But if I compared it chapter one to most horror movies that I've seen, it's it's okay. It's a passable experience. Um, I've not really any love for it. And that's surprising because I'm genuinely terrified of clowns and I'm arachnophobic. So it's kind of the, the perfect pairing for me to be scared. Yeah. But. Um, I remember watching this in university in my first year. It was one of the first films me and my flat watched together. And everybody ended it saying, oh, it was okay. Oh, it was fine. And it's it's one of those films where I think it's really well directed. It's really well performed. And there's nothing within it that's essentially bad. But there's nothing in there that's like, wow, what, what an amazing time that was. And it's an especially a large issue for the second one. But we'll get into that. The first one is really well performed. It's got really great performances. I think Skarsgård's really quite creepy. He mm-hmm. does that really well. And I think the child Castigate is fantastic because you've got people from Stranger Things here and stuff like that. They're, they're already credited actors. You're not taking a gamble on these people. They know what they're doing. 
And I think that really helps the first part. Just it's that these are the recognizable faces who are going to give a decent performance based on a book by Stephen King, which is superior to this adaptation. Um, I, 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 I do think there are scary moments in it. And I, I, I especially like the early moments. Like, like I'm talking about, like, opening credits are finished and you've got sort of like the eeriness of it, the ominous setting, and you're just seeing parts of Derry come to life. And I think that's done really well because I think King spent so much time in the book doing that. It's nice to see that it's brought to life on the screen as well. Mm. Yeah, and I will give credit to the cinematographer of this, Jeong Jong-hoon who made a lot, a lot, a lot of, of great Korean cinema, especially of Park Chan-wook. He was his go-to cinematographer. Um, audiences will be seeing him really soon with Last Night in Soho. And um, uh, the Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+. Plus. Uh, <laughs> oh, you know, he got a good paycheck out of that, as he did with it. <laughs> but, but yes, it's... Well, that's one of the, the biggest changes from the book, is that, of course, the book, it's set in the 50s, the child portion of it. Meanwhile, this one is set in the 80s, so they, so that the second chapter would take place in modern times. I think 2016 is the actual yeah. date. And it's it's a choice that pays off, I guess. Um, yeah, definitely. And I, I, I don't think it's a choice that disrespects the book either, because Stephen mm. King's gone back to stuff like The Stand and readapted it to fit modern times, where he's added like cell phones and stuff. To his credit, he put it at the start of the book, why are you reading this edition, which is... Lovely after you spent £25 on it. But um, <laughs> I think it has a right to take liberties with its setting and its story because it's sort of, it's not a story that's set in one time. It's not something that has to be set in the 1950s and then the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I do like that about it. It's um, It gives it that flexibility to say, oh, well, look at this, look at that. And I think especially for chapter one, it gives it that 80s nostalgia that everybody's into at the moment. Especially like Stranger Things. One and Stranger Things, exactly. Mm. Sort of stuff that was coming out at that time was really reliant on nostalgia pop zeitgeist sort of thing. And it's, I can't blame them. They, they adapt it fairly well. And it's, it, it doesn't make too massive a change to the core of the story because why would it? It's just a different setting. You still have the same archetypes, you still have the same political undertones, you still have the same background to all these characters. It's just 30 years later. And it, it's surprising how little impact it has. And I mean that in a good way. Where it's sort of, yeah, you know these characters in the 1980s, you know why they're in the 1980s, because it's nostalgia-driven. But it, I think Machete does it quite well. I think he does all right with that. Mm, yeah, and, and it fits with the whole idea of, of Derry, um, even in the book and in the second part. Like, the, the fact that it's, it's almost a place just out of time, out of timeless in its own way, and it's so old, um, nothing really changes there. Memory doesn't really exist almost when you're living in it you're living it but wait as soon as you get out of it you start forgetting everything it's almost like there's a curse the present of, of the presence of it it's almost like a curse on the city on the town it's my, just stuck. Yeah, my, my town has that but i don't think there's any clowns in it it's just a, <laughs> it's a giant clown under the sewers just uh... at least that means something's happened in this place for the past 50 years but yeah i, I just <laughs> I do like that, though, the whole idea of as people move away from Derry, they start to forget things about it, because, you know, in a, in a lot of films, especially the ones that are driven by nostalgia, the nostalgia comes from the idea that people reminisce about their hometown, that they miss it and that they want to go back to it. This is on the flip side of it, where it's mm -hmm. these people don't want to go back because they know what's there, but also because they don't really remember it. 
they have no fond memories. They have fond memories of their time with friends, but because they're associated with the place, it's just forgettable. And it's it's really well well done. I really like that sort of aspect of it. And it would have been so much stronger had it carried over better to the second chapter. But that's just a, a whole different ball game. That one. Yeah. Um. How how do you feel about the children portion in the book compared to the portion in in the first part chapter whatever of it? I think that well, there's the one obvious scene in the book that we kind of can't not talk about because of this part of the comparison and I, I I don't think it's a necessary part and I, I'm glad they didn't put it in the film Christ. Do you mean the but, giant orgy in the sewers? Yes I do it's just not just no oh dear it's neither hygienic nor ethical um, <laughs> you know, Stephen King man <laughs> that's, that's well, the coke in action <laughs> <laughs> I suppose cocaine is an excuse but we've seen what it did to Hunter Thompson um, yeah. I think it's I do like how the um, the relationship and the dynamic between this group of losers is adapted to the film I think it's done very well and I think it's performed excellently I think it's fantastic mm-hmm. um, especially oh what you call him? J- Jaden Lieber <laughs> I butchered his name Jaden Lieber as a uh, Bill Denver, I think he's fantastic. I really do, and I, it's always a little cheat when I see his name pop up in credits. I do think he's a fantastic talent. Um, mm-hmm. He works so well with the rest of that group. Who are each of each of them are really really good, and I think a lot of the heavy lifting is performed by them. They take a lot of this text, which is quite dense and quite difficult to adapt when you think about the the length of the book, and and they take it and just run with it, and they run with it really well. Um, I think they could have done with a bit of better support when you get to the big climax when you get actually meeting with Pennywise for that first time and then the last time as well. Um, there's sort of a not a petering out per se, but just sort of a you know, there's all this preparation for a big climax and then nothing mm. really just it sort of put us along a little bit and then you know, it's it's nice to see it and that interaction is necessary to set up the second one, but there's no finality with it. And obviously that's because they had another three hours to go through. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, um, I, I, I do always say, like for me, horror, just to categorize it in a wider way, I always say that there's the more character-driven horror and there's the scares-driven horror. And it's interesting what they do with it because the novel itself does have a lot of like scary moments, um, even though they've almost entirely been changed for the movie. Like you don't have the mummy or the werewolf or none of that. Um, again, they fit more in the fifties context of what was scary back then, you know, the, the yeah. swamp creature, swamp creature, and all of that. Um, it always for reminds the... me of that Back to the Future scene where Marty goes back and he's wearing like mm. sort of just a rubber mask, and it's like, oh my god, a spaceman! <laughs> Darth Vader in the room. And I, I think that's good of them to acknowledge that things from the fifties are no longer really scary, and moving it to the eighties mm. sort of gives you a lot of brevity and a lot of leeway to sort of say, well. The 80s stuff is still quite scary. You've got stuff like The Fly, you've got John Carmen's best works, you've got all this terrifying stuff, and that's the what Nightmare on Elm Street achieve exactly. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's interesting because it's it's almost a, a clash of sorts, if you want. And and that's always the problem with movies like this, like it chapter one, that rely so hard on jump scares so hard yeah. that no matter how good they are because they honestly they're pretty good like the first time we're watching it it's like oh i, I jumped a couple of times <laughs> nice <laughs> good enough good for you 
but but revisiting it i think this was the third time watching it and i was just kind of like bored through almost yeah. all of the scary moments because what what pennywise let's say or it does is that he wants like he feeds off the fear of the children before actually eating them that's kind of his whole it's whole thing which is like fair enough but there's a limit to how often you can have just boogie 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 <laughs> <laughs> and the kids go ah and they, and they leave and that's the end yeah. of the scene it's like okay um and that's think, yeah. even worse in the sequel <laughs> the second one Whoa. takes the piss Whoa. so frequently and i think just to add to what your point about jump scares it's like they're, they're good if they're done well mm. i think a lot of I don't mean to stereotype or just sort of generalize, but a lot of modern horrors that I've seen, sort of like your paranormal activities or your insidiouses or the conjuring sinister, that sort of brand of horror film that my friends like, and I've never really understood why. And I do think it's because they are scary, but the scares that they have are cheap. They're not narratively driven. They're not driven by character interactions. They're not driven by technique. They're just driven by things that come out of the blue are going to be scary. And of course they are. If you're sat in the dark and a face pops out, doesn't matter if it's Pennywise or like Bill Hader, you're going to be terrified. It's, it's because it's, it's the jump, it's the sudden surge of you 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 realizing there's something there when there wasn't in the first place. It's you, you lower the music, just add all the sounds go quiet. Like it's I think <sighs> it's, it's it's that predictability as well, and I think that's why I like it, the tension it creates is inevitable. But I think it's mm-hmm. it's nice that people can work with it when they sort of just don't put a jump scare in and the music just returns to normal, or it's just like a character slowly walking out, just being like, "Oh, how, how's everyone doing?" That sort of thing I really like. Yeah, I, I rewatched very not randomly, but like for for a for a Patreon special of Clapper that's going to be really it's going to be recorded soon. Um, I rewatched Trick or Treat yesterday. Mm. And that was kind of like, Jesus, there's some really good anti-jump scares in this. Or like every time you think there's going to be a jump scare, there's just not. And that almost unsettles you even more because you want the release. Um, yeah. And that's something that it doesn't do. Um, and but it's a be, shame. Yeah. But... It still manages to work because, like you mentioned, the characters are interesting. Like all of the dynamics in the group. I especially like the relationship between... Uh, uh, Beverly and Ben I think those two it's very tender very sweet Um, Sophia Lillis especially like if I had to choose just one person of of the cast um, which like I mentioned all of them are really good I think she's probably my favorite out of all of them Um, she has a level of maturity to her performance that um, also worked really well in the in the show that she did what's the name the not Uh, I am not okay with this uh, no, I mean, uh, it's she did that. I haven't seen that. Sharp objects. Sharp objects. That's the one. She yeah. was in sharp. I'm objects. thinking of the bloody. She was in that one as well. Of... Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's not the end of the. Fu- it's the other one from Netflix. It's kind of like the end of the fucking world. The not shit one. <laughs> the not shit one. <sighs> but but yeah, it's it's it all works and and you know it's. It's a literal, it becomes a literal spook house at one point. They actually go into the house of it. And it's literally like opening the doors, what's going to be behind this? Everyone sees something different. It plays off their fears um, in ways that are fun in their own right. Um, some scares are definitely more memorable than others. But Yeah. 
Mm. The, 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 I mean, it's not to say that there aren't notable scares. I always think the the Georgie scene, right? The star when the boat's going down the train. I do like that scene because even though you know what's going to happen, it's the the variety of technical merits that come from building that up and making sure it has the effect that is desired. It's essentially the driving point for the rest of the movie you're about to see. Yeah. And I think it, if we base it chapter one on that moment alone, I'd say it does pretty well to continue from what it was setting out to do, that feeling of emotion, that sort of lost soul, loser's club type angle that King adapts well in the book. It's adapted well here. Um, I just don't think there are enough scenes of that variety of horror to sort of recommend it to someone. And it also plays incredibly well with it being a narrated film. Um, because it's especially since the original like even if people haven't watched the 1990 miniseries they probably have seen the clip on youtube of the georgie scene with uh, with tim curry and the fact that in this one you see him like open his mouth and just (laughs) take it a bite (laughs) off of the kid's arm and he's just bleeding and screaming and pooping around like ah and just this long (laughs) head coming That was a really good scream. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's just... like the start of blowout. <laughs> oh, but it's it's a cool visual. I, and I remember watching that with an audience. You could feel people going, oh shit, they're not fucking around this time. Like mm-hmm. they're going straight in. They're like, a kid has died. Like there's no two ways about it. It's not just Tim Curry going <laughs> and just a zoom into his mouth. <laughs> Like, no, no, I don't know. I mean, Tim Curry's molars are pretty scary. No, it's... that's true. That's, that's also true. I, 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 didn't have, I didn't get to watch the uh, the first one in cinemas. I did have the mistake of seeing the second one in cinemas. Um, Let's get into the second one. We've been, we've been beating around the bush. <laughs> no. um, I watched the second one in cinemas the day it came out, and I watched it in oh. full room, which is one of the three cinemas I've been to where the room has been full. The other two are Avengers Endgame and Infinity War, of course. So oh. It Chapter 2 is a break from the deviation of shite Marvel films I've seen in the cinema that was full. And, um, our, oh no, Downton Abbey as well was full for some reason. Just smelled like piss and catheter bags because everybody there was like 90. Um, so British sorry, I was, pride right there. <laughs> I was the youngest person there by like five decades. It was terrifying. <laughs> Lowering the average age to 75. I came, I came out of that screening smelling like Werther's Originals. But when I went to see It Chapter 2, I went to see it with all my flatmates. It was like a big flat out because we just moved in. We thought, we'll get some food, we'll go and see a movie, that sort of thing. And when we got out, my flatmates, who one of them was a film and media student, ironically had a shit taste in films. Even they didn't like it. And they really liked cheap horror. Like their favourite film was I Spit on Your Grave 2, the remake. Um, That's oddly specific. That's that's such a... Well, I I did have the pleasure of watching that a week later. Um, was it better than each chapter two? A little bit, yeah, actually, yeah. Probably shorter, at, I guess. At least I spit on your grave too knew what it is, and it knows it's shit, and it makes all its characters shit. Um, the one thing I remember about seeing in chapter two in the cinema is that about an hour in, and it's when they're at the baseball park, I think, and James McAvee's like trying to save the kid, and then it like sees him die. Everybody knew that that jump scare was coming and didn't react to it. And from there, not a single, like, <gasps> like no, no gasps, no shock, no jeering or anything. It was just a dead atmosphere. Because they sort of just realised 
that's it. They've they've played all the tricks they had in the first hour. We've got two more to go. And Jesus. It's it's where I kind of appreciate the first one, even though I'm not the biggest fan of it. It's its pacing is right. Mm-hmm. And it knows not to sort of throw out all the cards at once. The issue the second one has is that we kind of know that Pennywise is coming. You can't just build him up again. It's already been done. And and they try twice. <laughs> you have two opening scenes in this film, and one is like 50 minutes in with the little girl. It's, yeah, yeah. And it's, um, it's uh, what frustrates me as well is the opening of it, chapter two, I do really like. I, I don't not, know why. I, I know some people really hate it. Um, well, it's, 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 it's a touchy subject because... It's always weird to me because, yeah, like it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like it's this one has uh, Xavier Dolan who's, uh, who's playing a who's, who's with another man. They're a gay couple uh, at the at the park in um, in Derry in modern days, twenty sixteen. Um, and there's a group of people who just make uh, homophobic remarks towards them, and then they just beat him up and throw him in the river, and Pennywise eats him. It's like people found it to be a hateful scene. Like, I mean, it, it's showing hate. I don't think it's meant to elicit. Yeah. It's, like, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I think the response is exaggerated. Um, yeah. It is very vicious. It's it is, like very it is. brutal. But it's um, like that in the book. It's, and it's a yeah. lot more drawn out in the book as well, where it's sort of, it actually takes up quite a good chunk of a few chapters actually dealing with the outcome of that and what it means for the sheriff's department it's mm-hmm. it's well handled but I, I suppose for chapter two it just kind of throws it in to be not reactionary but just to sort of prep an audience for the gore and the horror yeah it's, and it, it's effective in a way it's it effective is, it is. Yeah. Um, even if the book like you mentioned actually that's a good point the, the violence in the book and pretty much everything feels like it has a stronger impact in the long run um, yeah. Even the tor- even the oh I forgot the bully's name. Um, Henry Bowers. Yes. Henry yeah, Bowers is yeah. a horrible, horrible character. Um, and Pennywise, of course, loves him because he's he's pure evil, and he loves the fear that he elicits in the children. Um, and that's something that's present, like the fact that the adults are neither aware of it nor are they really aware of the rest of the violence and abuse that those kids are suffering at the end of the bullies and other adults as well and and the the, the torture especially that ben suffers from him the writing of the the name in the skin just carving it with oh. a knife it's, it's awful it's brutal they do have it in the film but again like almost everything unfortunately in these movies the event happens and it's almost forgot about on a character level on a physical level which is unfortunate i think it's mainly a script problem Um, yeah i think the the script and its pacing is really like quite difficult there's a lot of scenes where i I can't remember if if it's a hotel or just like a bed and breakfast thing where everyone's staying and there's that many scenes on that fucking staircase Bill Jessica Chastain just walking past each other like, oh, how did you do? More of the film is spent in that bloody corridor than anywhere else. And it's a good set, man. They're gonna use it. They spent good money on that staircase. Well, (laughs) they have memorabilia, good quality props. They're gonna be in the freaking movie. 
I've managed to salvage one line from my review of It Chapter 2, which I published uh, in 2019. It's the only line I'm happy with, and it's the scariest part of It Chapter 2 by far is its $79 million budget. And I like little things like that. That's that's the only line I could get from this review. And it is quite scary because the budget, I imagine, like just from a visual standpoint, a lot of it has gone special effects. A lot of it has gone those dream sequences with Bill Hader and Parks. And the, the final 30 minutes, I'd say, where they actually go back to Pennywise's house. Hmm. Um, and I don't really think it lives up to the horror because I think their rendition of horror beyond the Pennywise stuff is, oh, really grey, cloudy, smoky stuff that's going to like freak people out. Look, there's John Carpenter references. And it's just shit. It's not scary to reference something. It's, it's scary to think up an original effect. It, is this the one where she's trapped in the lift and then she starts seeing things? Is that one of her... The, the Pennywise vision, where she's like sees her father and stuff in a, in a bathroom. It's a bathroom. It's a bathroom, the bathroom yeah. Stall. Yeah, no, I don't know why I thought of a lift. <laughs> it is very cramped and claustrophobic, yeah. I think it's because there's a lift at work and it's absolutely tiny, and I'm up and down that like 20 times a day. So I'm just reflecting my horrors onto this film. But That's yes, she's in the bathroom stall. That sort of claustrophobia and, and anxieties, it mm. should be really well captured, but it's not. And I think the issue of it is because we're expecting it, but not in a sense of we can expect the emotions that come with it. It's just a blank canvas and there's nothing really shown or acknowledged in these moments of horror. It, it isn't showing the growth of these characters. It's not showing their fears or their desires. It's just showing them as people who are stopping an evil. And that's it. Mm. And there's so much more than that in the book. Yes. It's. I, I do think that there's rewatching it. I I was a bit not kinder to hit them first time around on this on the chapter two, but I didn't hate it more than I wasn't expecting to. <laughs> I was gonna like you know what I'm still rather ambivalent on this one, because there are moments of of human connection between these characters that do feel true to the book, but there's so much filler. Like literally an hour of this movie is just nonsense filler that adds nothing of value and I don't know how the script happened because those are not the same screenwriters of the first one like Fukunaga is not involved the only writer is is Gary Doberman Gary Doberman yeah and I mean Chase Palmer didn't come back as well he's written the Salem's Lot adaptation that's coming out next year which worries me I think he's directing it isn't he he is yeah it'll be a second direction Mm -hmm. after Annabelle Comes Home, which is... I enjoyed it, to be honest. Of, of the Annabelle films, is my favourite one. But that's not I've saying much. I've never seen much. any of them. It's like, I, I've seen The Conjuring, and The Conjuring was okay. Uh, I, I, if you have to watch any of them, which you don't have to do. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I have to. But, Mandatory. Uh, I, I say the third one is alright. Um, it takes the the scares and the interesting premise it takes it to a, to a good level like, it gives you what you want like you watch conjuring and it's yeah. like i want to see other shit in that room what does the other shit do and they're like we're never going to show you that but they well, do another the comes home that's what it struggles with this what do the audience want to see from this because it implies that there's a connection to the characters from the first film but then they've over sort of engage with the audience and most of these audiences are still horror fans they still want to just be scared by something 
And you can't have that and then an hour and a half of filler where we watch these people eat food and go, oh yes, I remember when we did that as kids and then flashback to when they were kids. And it's just so slow and it's so boring. And then the characters who are meant to be getting closer and uh, are then isolated so we can have those individual dream segments which just go on for ages. I remember the Bill Hader one did my head in because I, I, I like Bill Hader. I just think the, the fascination about him as a person, his stands, I think is the word, mm-hmm. terrifying, utterly terrifying. They're scarier than anything in it too. Um, Truly. And it's the same stuff for like John Mulaney, that sort of thing. It just freaks me out. But it feels like this is the canon fodder that people can go to and point and say, this guy's a serious actor. He's done serious horror films. And it's like, he's just doing his stand-up shtick and it works really well because everybody else is trying to take this seriously. He's literally doing the stand-up. Like he becomes, a, in, in the book, he's, a, he's a, like a radio jockey. And in this yeah. one, he's literally a stand-up comedian. <laughs> it's Bill Hader, people. <laughs> they did write giving him the Stephen King cameo segment, though. Like, out of everybody that was going to get it, I think Hader was the best one to manage that. It's unfortunate that King's cameo feels like a seal of approval. Um, I mean, the the men will actually put seal of approvals on the most shit things. The Dark Tower is a great thing. Look, I I interviewed the writer of The Dark Tower, and I didn't have the balls to ask him why he wrote that adaptation, but I I feel I should have asked, because that, that film is awful. It's a guilty pleasure for me, but like properly guilty. Like I'm like, how can I, I how can I enjoy this movie? Like, that's, oh, a, that's a criminal guilt. Nick. I I should go to jail for that. <laughs> like, how can you like to shoot out at the end? I'm like, I don't know. Idris Elba is just flying in the air and just going pew pew, and things blow up out of nowhere. It's like, sure, there's army people and zombies. I don't know. Matthew McConaughey is just doing the scenery. As someone that's not read the books, it really confused me. It was like, I, I haven't right, read the books as well, actually. Here's three books in 90 minutes. We'll go. <laughs> it's so strange. So, I mean, the I'm better than eight chapter shows. two that's like three hours long. So, I had rather take 90 minutes of Idris Elba shooting people. You could cut it chapter two down to about 40 minutes because there's yeah. nothing going on. Go to, go to the climax. You could do it like, you know that TV show 24 where they have like multi-cameras on it all at once. Just do it like that. Just do six. Six of those. Show the characters. Throw them into the house. That'd be easier. The moment they actually split up, you just see them at the same time. Kind of like, here was everyone's so doing. Because apart from Chastain, McAvee and Hader, couldn't give a shit. Honestly. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because just not nothing matters. And the way it's structured, every one of those scares, like Characters that goes to place, they have flashback to childhood. Childhood self sees Pennywise do something. Cut back to modern day. They find object, they turn around, Pennywise is still there. Oh my god, and they run away. And yeah. Pennywise just taunting them. Okay. When I watched it in the cinema, it wasn't noticeable. Like it just kind of drifted by me, and I didn't realize that was just sort of the set list they'd done. But on a rewatch where it's like they're doing this five or six times and it's ridiculous how simple it is. And it's, I suppose it's the only way to sort of deviate from, I mean, I don't know. It's, I know they need to get this information to the audience and it's, it's good that they do so, but they could have done it with variety. They could have done it as like sort of 
No, I mean, in the book, it's done well because you've got that flutter between past and present because you haven't seen it yet. And the issue there is that it chapter one has already broached the subject and it chapter two can only remind audiences two years later that, oh yes, they're, they're still here. And it's, it, it, it doesn't work. <laughs> and and I, I do suppose that's because, I mean, after reading it, because I'd seen the films first, um, it does seem like a difficult book to adapt because it jumps between chapters and perspectives and mm. timelines so quickly. And I really like that about the book because I feel like we focus on the films a bit much because of how shite they are. But the what I love about the book, and to be honest, I, it's not my favourite King. It's all right. It was really long. So I'm yes. glad I've read it. Because um, my... I mean, we'll broach this subject on the King special we're doing, but I'll, I'll mention it here briefly. My problem with King's writing, and I do love his writing, is that sometimes he overdoes it. Especially mm. Misery. That's my love-hate relationship with Misery. I love that book, but I love the film a little bit more because it tones it down. Um, with it, I think he gets away with it because there's that much going on, and it's that long. And it's that ability he has where a chapter will just end halfway through a sentence and he picks it up in a different era or a different character's perspective. And the first few times I read it, I thought, that's a bit cheesy. I don't know how I feel about that. But then you see the effect of it and the actual way it forms a timeline, the way it forms this relationship between how the character is now and who it was before. It's, I, I think it's phenomenal. I think it's one of his strongest assets. And it's the fact that he's tried something different. And, and, and you're living like the experience alongside the characters of actually going back in time with their memories with and that's one of the key themes of, of the book is just not only the importance of childhood but the importance of memories of, of maintaining history a track of, of things that happen through time of writing of telling stories that's a key aspect of the of the novel um, and especially with the death or the suicide of Stan as an adult the fact that it happens relatively early on in the book and that presence, that, that event is felt throughout because you keep seeing him alive as a kid and you see the adults talking about it. In the film, like in the first film, already Stan does very little and he has a big speech that they cut out and then they reuse it conveniently at the end of chapter two. But just his death, it, it, you never really feel the impact of that. Um, it's yeah. very much one of those like, in the script, they they feel the impact. They have to feel it. It's like, yeah, sure, they have to feel like that. But I don't think any audience member was like, oh, no, Stan, my favorite character is Stan. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's because we spend so much time individualizing and experimenting with these characters. And I use the word experiment loosely there because it is a very tried formula after mm. you've seen it four times over. Is that you're getting all this detail about characters that are alive and there's so little about Stan that you just, you, you, the audience have no choice but to forget his impact, especially when it was kind of butchered. It was lost in the translation of the film. Hmm. And it's, it is understandable. There is only so much you can do with a character that only has prominent scenes when he's in the 1980s or the 50s in the book. And there's no real work around of that. I do think it's kind of cheap for them to rely on scenes that were cut from the first film to push forth with this idea that he was relevant. Because again, audiences probably don't care. Like, I I forgot he was there. Like, 
he doesn't do much in the first film and it's hard to make a connection when there are so many characters yes. like people are going to be focused on this performance or that performance it's not a bad performance from the kid whose name i have forgotten but i think his name wyatt or something isn't it um wyatt olive yeah i knew i was right i knew i was there wyatt. Oh, it was in like of the galaxy everyone's in guardians of the galaxy it's jewelry service he was so, in someone married Barry. Like one of the five people who's seen that. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> classic comedy. Oh, God. But yes, it's not a bad performance. It's just... It, it's not even unremarkable. It's, it's, it's a solid performance, but there is so much going on for the other characters, and there is so much more detail for them. Mm. It's inevitable that he's going to get forgotten because these characters have more to do. Yeah. Especially when, you know, you kill them off in the first 10 minutes of the second film. And then you wrap it all up at the end by handing out letters. It's, it makes as much sense as Peter Bogdanovich's cameo, which is beautiful, but uh, I don't get it. Yeah, the, the references in the second eight are just weird. It, it was like, what? Me. Yes. And I think it's funny I... that, again, like, I, he I heard, I watched Trick or Treat yesterday and that one has a much better use of the you got to be fucking kidding me from the thing because yeah. this movie has it again but it's literally the scene from the thing the head this is on the floor the and thing. it becomes the spider i thought i'd mandela affected uh, myself i thought i'd made that scene up in my head but i'm glad you've mentioned that because i wasn't sure i was dreaming or not um a lot of sleepless nights these days and a lot of, you know, look at these bags under my eyes. It's blur. But <laughs> it, the world is in motion. I just didn't believe that scene could exist because of how shit it was. And isn't it Bill Hader that says it? Or um, I think he does, yeah. Of course he does. He's the comedian character. It's not, it's not, it's not, even, a ref, it's not even a homage. It's literally the, <laughs> it's the just, moment. It's the it's same just... thing. <laughs> What, what were those doodle pads you'd get where you'd fill in the blanks with like verbs and stuff? It's one of those. <laughs> and it's, I think the issue as well is that, it, like I said at the start of this recording, it was, there is not a fine quality to be found in either of the films. I don't particularly like either of them, mm. but the comparison between the first and the second makes the first one look fantastic. And yeah. both of them have issues with pacing, with their derisions of story, with their elements of technical aspects. It's just all a bit of a cluster at times. Where if Chapter 2 fails, it then has to solve this entire narrative, and it has three hours to do it, and that's far too much time. That is way too long to fill this narrative up. And it's shocking because a three-hour movie and you feel like you don't know the characters at all. Meanwhile, you're yeah. reading the book and it's like, okay, I actually, like, give me more time with them in the present. Like, what happened in those years? And it, they rely too much on, on archetypes, on cliches for, especially what's unfortunate is, is it's um, Bill's wife, who's a much more prominent character in the book. And in this one, she's yeah. just a bitchy actress. And that's, you and never it's... see her again. She's in one scene with Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> And that's it. And it's, it's like, a shame you didn't, you didn't see that. You want more. In the book, I absolutely love uh, the ending of the book. And I will spoil it here. So just you know, close your ears or whatever if you've not read it. Where the driving and she's catatonic and she's, he's driving so fast. And it's just such a great release 
and it's not even it's not a happy note to end on it's a satisfying one though because mm-hmm. it's sort of it, the growth of the characters is, is then clear as day but the issues that they've experienced don't just sort of fade away because Pennywise is gone which is what the film kind of feels like it's like ah yes what a, what a time that was now we've forgotten and that's it and it's even though we lost was... two friends <laughs> <laughs> well yeah that swings around about isn't it <laughs> Oh, yeah. Now it's I, I do think ultimately the problem the first it works. It's not great per se. Um it's no. definitely lost a lot of impact for me over the years because of because of just how ultimately dull it becomes once you know the scares. Um there's myth there, there's substance. It works as an adaptation of the novel of the childhood part at least. Um it could have used more bite. I don't know if I've just become desensitized, but I think it could have pushed some elements more, maybe yeah, here I and there. The, I think because, I, I mean, we were talking about this before we started with Titan. I remember watching Raw, mm. and that's such a, a gory and artistically pleasing piece that it's kind of, I prefer that now. It's not that I don't appreciate what it does, which is very, not commercialized, but it's very sort of, ah, there's gore, it'll scare someone. Hmm. It, it's it's the depth of it and what it means for the characters because in it it's like ah George's lost his arm this means his brother will be sad <laughs> in Raw it's like the implication is that ah this character is actually quite quite terrible and then they explore that with more gore and more violence and there's actual hmm. set pieces that linger on the camera and it, with it it's very reactionary it's very knee jerk it's like oh my god that's scary quick cut away we don't want to show that too much and overly and reliant on CGI as well yeah, which is a which shame, especially no when impact. you're going to, especially when you're trying to embrace John Carpenter, who was notorious for his physical aesthetics. But who am I to judge? Um, yeah, that's what I don't like. Um, as a final point on each chapter two, is that it feels rushed, because the first one yeah. they had years working on it, working on the script, getting the cast, making it. They got a got a wonderful cinematographer making the, the shots and everything and it looks great and the second one they were like okay the kids are gonna age up way too quickly we got all of the actors that people want to be in the movie even though i don't think they're the best choices um at least james mcavoy um out of everyone i'm not the biggest fan of jay ryan who plays the older version of ben he's just kind of there it's like ah, sure i uh, yeah i have a real soft spot for james mcavoy um because I've he's he's in another film about a book that just simply shouldn't have been adapted, Filth. And I absolutely love Filth. I think it's one of my it it, it probably is in my top ten just of all time. Nice. I absolutely adore that film. Um he has a penchant for being in things that just shouldn't be adapted to film. Um He wasn't this... in a Dune novel adaptation, Children of Dune or something like that. <laughs> oh, was he was oh <laughs> he was, yeah. Bring it he back to the a, next thing. <laughs> it was in Wanted as well. But the yes, best adaptations. Speaking of Dune, um, <laughs> now you you had the pleasure of seeing the new one. I have had the pleasure of seeing the title Dune World, which is meant to cash in on the new one. <laughs> so I think we're pretty primed and ready to talk about it. Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about Dune. Um, the thankfully the 80s one not the one that looks really shit and boring you see this 
Put your right hand in the box. What's in the box? Pain. Stop. Put your hand in the box. I hold at your neck, the gomja bark. This one kills only animals. Are you suggesting that Duke's son is an animal? Let us say, I suggest you may be human. Your awareness may be powerful enough to control your instincts. Your instinct will be to remove your hand from the box. If you do so, you die. I will briefly talk about the, the new one at the end of the conversation, yeah. just for comparison sake about the yeah. Dune. I'm, I'm interested to hear what you think. <laughs> oh man, and I have thoughts. <laughs> but, but Dune was a science fiction book written by Frank Herbert. Um, I've heard so many pronunciations of his name, like Ebert. <laughs> I don't know, Herbert sounds better. I, whatever. 1965, we're talking about classic, classic sci-fi literature here. Um, again, a book that... they can't get their head around time travel and other <laughs> shit like that. Those were the days, man. You know, they were simpler, <laughs> they were nicer, everything was quicker. Um, and 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 Dune was an incredibly giant novel. Um, it changed the face of sci-fi forever. It inspired countless writers. Because it's, I would say, the, the main difference that separates Dune from other sci-fi stories is that this is all about the mind. It's all about the power of the mind. It's not about fancy technology and flying cars and other things, because it does, it does have fantastical elements like that. It does have spaceships and stuff, but it's not about technological improvements, but it's all about the improvement of the mind, of what humans are capable of. And, and it's, it's a political novel. It, could, it's, it, it has this character, Paul Atreides. Um, I'm going to struggle to remember all of the names in this because, Jesus Christ, there's so many names. And so You're many not the things. only one. I know <laughs> Kyle McLaughlin. It's the Kyle. I know the character. I know the actor's name better than the character's names. It's like the Bene Gesserit. And it's the Mujahideen. It's it's all of those. It's it's steeped. Well, this this is a point of controversy actually with the with the novel itself. It's carried through the adaptations as well, but it's steeped in Arab culture because it's 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 about desert people. It's also basically lots of planets, year ten thousand one hundred something, and uh, two houses are at war. The house of Atreides. And the house of the of the fat people. Um, <laughs> what's their name? Just say it's Tatooine from Star Wars. We all know Dune was based on Star Wars. House uh, uh, Arconnen. House Arconnen. Those are the baddies. Yes, the baddies yeah. are the Harkonnens, um, led by a baron. And so basically, they're kind of at war with each other. There's a lot of tension. And House Atreides inherits the planet Arrakis, the Dune desert planet. And, and it's interesting because to make it very, very short, because there's just, just a lot, again, this was a long, it's a long read, um, but to make it super short, basically, it's all about politics, it's all about one man changing the system, and it's also about that one man understanding that he's going to become a problem for the future. It's about being inspired by heroes, but also how heroes are destined to become villains, how their ideas will be 
misshapen and misunderstood by those who follow them. They become bigger than themselves. Um, in that sense, it's very interesting how it destroys the idea of heroes, of myths. Yes. Um, how it destroys the establishment. There's a lot of, lot of interesting ideas in this one. And I think the novel is rather great. Like I was reading, I was like, this is actually better than I was expecting. Um, less heavy handed in a way than everything else. Um, and to quickly touch on, on controversies again, this does appropriate a lot of terms from Arab culture. I mentioned Mujahideen is the name that he chooses as the leader of the, like the prophet, the chosen one, whatever, for the, for the Fremen, not the free men, the Fremen who <laughs> live in the desert. Um, and there's elements of that where it's kind of like a white savior thing. You also have um, accusations of this being not um, not um, anti-feminist tale, but you definitely have the element of you know the Bene Gesserit is this group of, of women, religious group of women who have psychic powers, and the mother of Paul Atreides was a Bene Gesserit, and she was supposed to give birth to a daughter, but she gives birth to him purposefully so to a child, a, a boy. Uh, and he's more powerful than they can ever be, and they can do more cool shit than the women. So there's some controversies in that sense. I wanted to acknowledge them, but honestly, they don't matter much, I think, um, no, in the novel's sense, at least. It's it's novel. good to acknowledge those as well, because they are, obviously, they're, they're, they're prevalent in the book. I think what surprises me the most about Dune, though, or June, I don't actually, it's been like six months since I read it, and I still don't know how to pronounce it. June? June. I would say Dune. Dune. The Dune. thing I am amazed Dune. with about Dune is that <laughs> I was honestly I was a bit nervous before I started reading. I was mm. absolutely terrified because it's, it's a big, big book and it's got such a, especially now it's got such a prevalent stance in pop culture and discussion online and in person. Is that, mm. and it's quite a big book. It's very jargon heavy, very confusing at times but none of that put me off and it's i think it's because i was so fascinated by it and it's he, he yes he appropriates a lot of culture and yes he does a lot of things quite tensely and quite crudely but the overall effect is an extremely tight well-written science fiction piece that takes its liberties with real world culture and the politics mm. of the time and what extends into the now and, and the trade-off of that is such a rich lore and such an interesting universe. And it's it's not often that I find sci-fi interesting enough to sort of read further on and find out more. And I do feel inclined to with Dune because there's so much of it. There is so much going on. It doesn't feel stagnant yet. It doesn't feel corrupted. Not by Herbert, but by fans and merchandise and stuff like that. And I don't know if that just makes me sound like a hipster, pretentious loony. But one of my big issues with Star Wars is the fan base. Mm. I, I would love to get into Star Wars. I used to play the Lego games as a kid. It was how I got introduced to Star Wars. But oh, nice. then I, it, every time you try and talk to a Star Wars fan, in my experience, it's been, well, if you've read comic edition number 127, you know this wasn't true. And it's like, I don't have time for that. I do have time for June, though, because it, it, it doesn't expect you to like know everything. It's, it's very nice in that sense it's sort of like a come along we're going this way it's like but what happens if we go over there it's like that is for another time and another book written by somebody else 30 years later leave it be there's there's and a lot of books of, there's a hell of a lot of, i was in water today and there was just 
a shelf solely of Dune sequels, and it's like there's so many. There's Children of Dune. There's there's the Dune adaptation on Sci-Fi Network. There's so much of it, and it's it's nice that it has both the longevity, but also not the pop culture hold it should have, especially with Lynch's adaptation because. I mean, at the time of him directing that, he was a pretty big name. He'd done a razor head, he'd done the elephant man. He'd been nominated for an Academy Award. And I guess that gave not just him, but the producers the confidence to say, okay, now's the time to do this. Because Jodorowsky's adaptation, I'm, I'm pretty sure the reason I got canned was because of the budget. It's, it's and, it was insane, Jesus. It had to have I mean, everyone in that. But the budget for David Lynch's edition of June was 40 million. Which is like, in 80s money, that's like a lot. Yeah. In today's money, that's sort of an independent film. But <laughs> it's 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 such a big gamble, and it doesn't work. And there are a lot of reasons for that. I don't think Toto and Brian Eno doing the soundtrack helped much. But well, well, who knows? <laughs> who knows? Maybe that's who the key knows? ingredient, actually. Um. <laughs> ah, yeah, Brian Eno, get on the prophecy theme three years after Remain in Light. I, I, I remember I watched Dune at the start of the first lockdown, so like April last year. I wasn't mm. a fan of it. And then re-watching it, and I, 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 you messaged me saying, watch the extended edition, and I did. And I liked it a lot more than when I watched just the regular edition, which I had mm. on DVD. Um, I have a lot more appreciation for it because... I, I think, especially after reading the book, it's you can't expect someone to have this well. It's it's such a a monumental task, and I think we've we've accidentally made a nice pairing of the books we're talking about. Are these two mm-hmm. books that, on paper, seem rather simple to adapt? One's a horror film, the other one is a science fiction flick, and it's the detail, the small little things that you notice in the book that are lacking in the film, and it's like those little details are what make June so great. It's what really presents the world around them and one of the f- most fascinating parts of the book I thought was Atreides and the world around him not so much him but who he was interacting with where he was going why there was conflict and it's written so well and especially because of the time it was written in like Frank Herbert writing this in the mid-1960s is monumental because apart Truly. from stuff like H.G. Wells you had people I've got a little shelf behind me and I always pick them out little sci-fi books that I find in the free bookstore because they look like shit and a lot of early sci-fi is awful it's like my goodness we've invented the time travel what shall we do with it and then they do nothing with it they send someone about 20 minutes into the future and they go ye gods what have we done so to write something so big in a time where people were picking up essentially like pocket books that they would take with them on train journeys and bus journeys just to sort of read it was filler for the mind and and to write something of such epic proportions is incredible not because it works but because of how far it goes against the culture of the times and how sort of marketized it was and sterilized that writing had become at that point and it, it it did pave the way for a lot of influential works in itself obviously we mentioned Star Wars. That's kind of the, the inevitable takeaway from it. And it's I've always mm-hmm. wanted to watch that Jodorowsky's Dune documentary. I haven't seen um, it yet, actually. Yeah. It, uh, by the sounds of it, it's sort of like the, the correlation between Star Wars and Dune is more than coincidental. Um, and you can see that. You can. But, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed the book. And 
rewatching the film wasn't incredible, but I, I really, I, I, if anything, I just really felt for Lynch, to be honest, because I've got a, a rocky relationship with Lynch. Mm. But not not personally, obviously. I don't know the guy, but like as far as his films go, I absolutely adore some of them, and I really loathe some of the others. Um, but we can get into that if you want. Sure. I don't want to be. I don't want to be mobbed. I've already been attacked by ABBA fans today. I got death threats for saying that one of their singles wasn't that good. Fort, have you have you ever pissed off fourteen thousand ABBA fans? They're Jesus. beasts. They're horrible, terrifying people. But <laughs> best I, left I alone. The, the Lynch mob might kill me. Well, um, well, speaking of Lynch, if anyone who's listening knows me, they probably told you that I'm a massive fan of Lynch. Um, to the point I'd probably say it's my favorite director of all time. And and it, truly, yeah. And Dune was my f- last movie of his that I had to watch, and I saw it in 2019, late 2019. Um, and I was like, you know what? This is actually all right. I didn't read the novel yet. Uh, I didn't know much about any of it. I was like, you know, it takes a, takes a long time to get going in extended cut. But it was all right. I was like, you know, there's themes, there's things that happen. There's a cool Toto soundtrack here. It's like, yeah, it works. Um, and so reading the book and then going back to this, I think the most shocking thing is how pretty accurate it is, pretty faithful even in adapting the novel. Um, the original theatrical cut is a bastardized version. Um, I think both versions have the Alan Smithy credit in the opening uh, for the director because it's the it's it's the name that directors use. It's the alias that they use when they just disassociate themselves from a project. So basically, it's the way of saying this this is not what I wanted to do. I don't agree with this at all. So I'm Alan Smithy now, and it's 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 fascinating because it's. I don't think it's that bad. I do think an abridged version of it probably cuts so much lore, so many explanations of the politics and the characters that everyone is, that it's kind of like mind-numbing. And even having read the book, watching the opening 10, 15 minutes of this, they're just a massive exposition dump with storyboards. You just kind of go, Ah, it's the emperor and the, the Mujahideen and the Arcanans and the, what? I don't know what's happening here. Go to the space. Go to space action. Um, that's that's the strength of the book. And you mentioned it great. I totally agree with what you mentioned. What you said, Ewan. The strength of the book is that you're still able to follow it despite all of the jargon, because the it's it's a classic hero's journey. You know, it's the chosen one prophecy. It's him going on the adventure. It's reaching the bottom when everyone has died and is picking himself up and being reborn, almost literally as well here. Um, it's following the what John Campbell Campbell did, um, and you know Lucas took from it as well, it's going back to the well, and it's effective. It's it works, it just works, and I. I do think this is primarily held back, not only by trying to be almost too faithful to the book, because you don't, there's so much talking at times, especially in the first hour of this, there's kind of like, ah, it's too much, it's too much, way too much. Um, And it's also held back by the effects, because try as they might, there are some really impressive sets, backdrops, and matte paintings in this, but but when they're riding the sandworms, 
I made a GIF out of that. I was just a GIF or whatever. I just made one out of it and just put it on Twitter. I was like, I'm going to look at that whenever I'm feeling down because I just love just Cal McLachlan and, and the other guy just standing on top of the top of the thing, just looking at each other and just smiling like, hey, like, yeah, <laughs> just the paint to the background moving. There's no camera shades, no nothing. Um, bless them. Bless them. And total soundtrack. Dun, 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 dun. It's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's an element of camp almost that's effective yeah. in here. It's endearing. It is. And I think that's the greatest strength that I know Lynch doesn't like his work on this film. I think he said at a QA, he was like, why do you like this film? <laughs> or something like that. Um, and yeah, I, I see where it's coming from. It's sort of like the blue eyes that light up. It looks a bit shit now. But that's, you know, I, I find it hard to knock uh, the, the special effects when they look bad here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I They do look bad, but I think for what they had at the time, it's rather endearing. And for the budget they have and for what they're trying to achieve. And it's like you said, it's the, the greatest effort for the book is that it's still readable and you still acknowledge everything that's going on despite it being very jargon heavy despite there being all these sort of names and roles that are just invented for the audience especially a western audience who might not be you know coming to terms with the the appropriation of Arab culture is that you have a lot of titles and roles and opportunities for development elsewhere and loads and loads of stuff is going on but it is streamlined to a point where you know who people are off of their their writing, their dialogue, their what they say to one another. You know who's in positions of power. You know who's trying to get to where they need to be next. And it's, I think that's a shame for the adaptation that Lynch does, is that I absolutely love the ending of the first book, where he, mm-hmm. he comes to power, he's now the emperor, and he, he realises that it's, it's now too late, essentially, even though what he was doing for the whole of the book is justified and it's relevant and it's it's the right thing that he's doing at most times. And the, the ending of the film is just such sort of a, a sudden one. It's like, it, it, it beats it's the guy raining. in the fight. It's <laughs> raining. And then it ends. And it's the, the credits give me such joy. Oh. Where it's like their name and then they appear like a wrestler in a video game. <laughs> and the waves behind them. Yeah, it's, it's the water is like, yeah. yeah. And, it's so, and it's stuff like that, and especially the fight at the end, that, and I know uh, June came out before it, but it reminds me of Flash Gordon. Um, it reminds me yeah. so much of that style, that sound, that effect. And it reminds me of the, the Timothy Dalton fight that they have where they're on the pit that's shaking above the void. Um, if anything, Flesh Gordon builds upon this to make something yeah. truly great. <laughs> it's the um, it's the electric guitar in the finale. It sounds a bit like Queen as well. It's like, oh, yes. come on, lads. They've predated Flash Gordon. That's but... when the soundtrack lits up. It's it's during yeah. the last 30, 40 minutes. It's like that, the epic that's theme. The Brian Eno. <laughs> yeah. That's the but good it's... stuff. And it's such a stacked cast. So it's kind of like I think he's smart with casting so many big names. You know, you've got Brad Jurif, you've got Max Monsada, you've got McLachlan, Joseph Ferrer, you've got a, a Patrick huge Stewart, cast. Brad Patrick Durif, Stewart, Sting, Dean Stockwell, Sean Virginia Young, Virginia Markson. And I think 
that's that's where I think the casting makes sense. Not just because yeah. these are big names and that they're great performers, but that applying these people to a role that is signified by their movement, by their dialogue, by what they look like, it makes something like June so much easier to acknowledge. Because on mm -hmm. the paper, you have the benefit of just rereading it. You can just go back and think, all right, this is who this is, this is who that is. With the film, they're so distinguishable and so different. It's like, all right, you know who this guy is, you know who that lass is. And the great thing about that is that it, Lynch adapts that really well. I think he does such a great job of realising that there is a lot of information, there is a lot that can't be cut. So the best way to get around that is to make something so vivid and so stylish. And I do, I do have a lot of appreciation for what June's visuals are like. I'm really impressed with them. It looks unbelievable. Like, yeah. I'm surprised. And it's it's why I'm so nervous to see the new one. Because it's the scene towards the end where uh, McLachlan's in the black suit. He's got the nose piercing with the wire on it and stuff like that. It looks great. And then in the, in the new one, the uh, Villeneuve one, it just kind of looks a bit bland. And it kind of just looks, eh, it's, it's a dusty planet with sand on it yeah that's it at least with lynch's version it has like color to it even though it is just one block color it's brown it's sand but then it's contrast with the dark suits and then the, the layer over the camera makes it distinguishable with the trailer and i imagine i hope it's different in the movie you'll know better than me but it just looks really uh, it has no flourish. It looks very, very cut and standard to a producer's level of it must look like this. It must look like the new latest sci-fi project. And it's a shame because June is such a, even despite it being on a sound planet, it's such a colourful book. It's such an imaginative book. And it's it's that respect to have for Lynch with this one where it's, it isn't a good adaptation, but it's such a, a good go at it. It's, I can see where he's trying and he mm -hmm. is trying his best. I don't get that feeling with Villeneuve, but I've only seen the trailer, so I can't really say much on it. Yeah, no, and the, 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 the Lynch version has like small changes here and there to the story, to the characters that don't really matter to the grand scheme of things. I think that's, again, commendable in its own weird way. It did work primarily work on the script himself. Um, in his autobiography, he does talk about having the the co-writers of Elephant Man actually working on a first version of the script. They were writing it together, but then he kind of scrapped some of the work they did and they finished writing it himself. Um, he had a bit of an ego back then. That's when he was was staying with the wrong kind of people and becoming too big, too much of a Hollywood hotshot. Um, but Is he this needed this. He, he turned down Star Wars, didn't he? Return of the Jedi. He did. Did yeah. I think it was, I like I don't remember if it was after or before. Like when did Return of the Jedi? I think Return of the Jedi was eighty three. Eighty three. Then yes. Then yeah. he turned it down before. Yeah, yeah. After after Elephant Man. I would Come. rather have a shit Dune adaptation than a good sci fi Star Wars adaptation with Lynch's name on it. I would rather see the man struggle in passion than succeed in density. Jesus. Imagine David Lynch's Star Wars, The Return of the Jedi. Oh, uh, what world could have, we could have been in? I do love that story. Like, If, if you're listening to the episode, um, search on Google 
David Lynch, Return of the Jedi, and you see just Lynch recounting it. He had a fever, and he went to George <laughs> Lucas's house, and he's just talking about Ewoks and, and, uh, <laughs> and stuff, and he just gets a bigger headache. It's like, no, 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 no. I don't know what you're talking about. This is not for me, George. <laughs> While while you're on the Lynch binge on YouTube, always just go for David Lynch iPhone. Uh, that's a classic. I've watched one film on my phone, and I'm very proud of that. And it was Paul Blart Mall Cop Two, because <laughs> it was the only film I could download, and it was for a flight. And it would have been. I'm terrified of flying. I would have rather sat and stared out the window than watch that film again. But naturally, it's on the shelf behind me. Of course, in Blu-ray quality. I wish. I'm oh. like, oh, it's been some years since I saw Paul Blart Mall Cop. But it's an upgrade. I need it in 4K. And they do the box set. It's the first and the second one with two hours of bonus features. Jesus, someone sell a tape and observe and report under the back of it as well. Oh, good old Seth Rogen. Uh, but yeah, no, the Lynch version, I do, I do like it. Um, as, as a fan of Lynch, I am biased, of course. Um, it is easily his weakest film for me. Um, really? Yes, yes. Let's just say, like, I'm not giving star ratings anymore, but I'd probably oh, yeah, give yeah. five stars to seven of his films. So, like, wow. Eraserhead, uh, maybe Elephant Man, let's just say, uh, Blue Velvet, Wild at Heart, Lost Highway, Fire Walk With Me, Mulholland Drive, and that's, I'm just listing his movies now, so I think, yeah. Let's <laughs> just say I... everything that's not Dune, <laughs> and probably, uh, let's say Elephant Man. I do really like Elephant Man. Elephant Man's my favorite of his. There's always um, something missing for me to give it that five-star just rating. I don't know what. I, um, I, I think... Dune is his second weakest film. I'm not, I don't want to say his weakest film because I feel like I'll be shot. Inland Empire, no, Wild at Heart. No, I like Wild at Heart. Inland Empire. I've not seen Inland Empire. Mulholland Drive. I don't mind Mulholland Drive. Lost Highway. No, I, no, I, wait, Eraserhead. Yeah. Oh. I, I do not like Eraserhead, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. I, I had Eraserhead near the bottom of my list, together with Inland Empire, and then rewatched them. I, like, I no gave what? Eraserhead um, a, a generous two. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I remember coming out of that film, watching it, and I just thought, what a bunch of fucking nonsense. <laughs> oh, it's a lot of nonsense. <laughs> and I just, I think it works better in other Lynch films. Like, I really, really like Lost Highway. I mm. think that's a fantastic film. And even the straight story, more yes. of like a streamlined Hollywood offering, it's so emotionally driven. Mm. And, and, I think uh, if, I want, if I want weird Lynch, I'd watch Fire Walk with me. Yeah. I'd be interested to see a recut of Dune with the Angelo, Angelo Badalamenti score. I would love to see how much that changes the film because there's a lot of lynch flourishes in here like some people tend to say oh it's not really a lynch film but if you're watching it like you can tell the obsession yeah, with visions and dreams and um, the little man rising against the system in a way 
it's, you know, there, there, there's lynching things in this. The opening of the theatrical cut, especially. It yeah, effective. it definitely has sort of his style to it. Mm. I don't think it's one of those films where oh anyone could direct this. It's it's definitely a an extremely personal, not personally, but just sort of a, a film that is notable for him. You can tell it's him doing it. You can tell these flourishes are him. I, I think people could replicate that, but it wouldn't have the emotional drive behind it. it. Wouldn't have those messages of dreams and meaning behind it. And I think that's where I can give June sort of a. a I can let it off a bit. I can let the films go because it's not adapting everything in the book. It's trying to cram in as much as possible for the zeitgeist, the iconography of all these scenes, but. At its core, Lynch is kind of changing the message of what he wants to talk about. He's still including all this political array and the distress of it all and the, the rise of the empire, but cutting out that last section of the book, in, in its place is those notions of dreams and the sort of substance of them and what it means for his future. It's, it's not, I don't know, it's, it, it feels quite spiritual in a way, mm -hmm. but I do think that's adapted really nicely. And I, I think it's a nice trade-off. It's not as interesting as sort of the the political explosion that happens in the book, but how can you even adapt that to the screen? I'm terrified to see what Villeneuve's offering will bring. Uh, well, let, let me let me talk about the Villeneuve version for a little bit. Um, yeah. Because like like you briefly mentioned, I did see this early. I saw this at the Venice Film Festival this year. Um, not the premiere, of course. People always presume it's the premiere. Assume it's the premiere. It's not, thankfully. Was it the premiere? Um, it <laughs> wasn't, actually. <laughs> fun story, actually. Fun story. Um, this isn't public anywhere, but um, I did interview um, Isabel Sandoval at the, at the festival. Oh, yes, you did. When I was yeah. there, which is highlight of all the years going to the festival. Loved her so much. She's delightful. Um, and we were talking, like, this year they messed up big time with the booking of the tickets because there were like problems with the system, things were just messed up. She herself was having problems booking tickets to films. And she told us, she told us that Luca Guadagnino did not manage to get tickets to the June premiere. Oh my God. <laughs> Even being very, very important director and friends with Timothy Chalamet and other actors, he didn't manage to get tickets to the premiere. It was it's, like, you know, makes me feel better about myself. I mean, by, by the sounds of it, a lot of festivals this past year have been having a few issues. I know Jack was having a few issues with... Uh, with London. The, yeah, London <laughs> with the Spencer screening. Oh, oh, God. Poor Jack. Poor Jack. Oh, God. At least he got to see it. And I'm stuck watching Diana the Musical. I don't know why I take that shit anymore. <laughs> I, I see it pop up on the Trello board and I'm like, oh, yes, please. It's, uh, I, uh, uh, yeah, I, all I needed was the trailer. It was like, you know what? That's all I needed to see. I think I saw it the day after Spencer. I think it came out like that. I was like, oh, I did see Spencer. Um, before Titan, good? before Titan, it was my favorite film of the year. I'd have to oh, rewatch wow. Spencer, though. I do love Titan a lot. Um, but speaking of Dune, <laughs> uh, I did watch it as a, a okay. Full disclosure, I tried getting tickets to the press screenings at in the morning, 8 a.m., nothing, 11 a.m., nothing. I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not watching this film. I don't care. <laughs> I didn't care before. I'm not watching it now. And I got forced by my, my flatmates there, my friends, 
to watch it at the midnight screening because they added an oh. extra midnight screening for fans because everyone wanted to watch it. I was like, I don't want to. And I was like, fine, I'll just click on this and just see if there's a seat. And there was literally one seat left in the bottom right corner of this massive screening room. I was like, oh, all right, let's do this. We went, lots of caffeine in my body. The movie starts. And let me tell you, this might be not maybe not the loudest, but one of the loudest movies I've ever seen. Our good boy Hans Zimmer has made the score. Oh, that's good for me and my tinnitus. <laughs> Man, like, I'm not joking. There were two movies where I was just walking outside of the festival and I was just hearing the ground shaking. I thought there was a, a earthquake. One movie was Dune. The other was The Last Duel by Ridley Scott. So get, get ready for that. Uh, both movies really fucking loud, Dune especially. And it was effective because, I mean, it's midnight and you have these massive sounds like... <laughs> Just booming constantly. Um, I didn't like this film. Just flat out saying it. I was yeah, not, not I, a fan. I, was, I remember when you injected the coverage and I remember reading your tweets about it. And I thought, I, I was waiting to see you next time. I just forgot. What was it about this new one that you just didn't like? Just boring. Um, if anything, again, this fits with what we talked about with it. Because what I, what I really like about the first date is that it's called It. It starts off as It. It's a complete story. And at the end, it says It Chapter 1. Dune, that on the poster says Dune, oh, starts it, with Dune Part 1. Like, literally, oh. the first fucking thing you see is the title Dune Part 1. It's like, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. You better get James McAvee back for that Children of June oh. spin-off. Oh, I wish. I wish. I could have given him a cameo in this one. Yeah. Do you think there'll be another one, though? Yeah. I mean, that's the only, literally the only benefit of the doubt I gave this movie. Because it was like, you know what? It's two and a half hours of nothing. Um, I can even tell you where it ends, actually, if you want. Yeah, go for it's, it. I mean, it's not like a spoiler. It's, it's the book. I've it's the book. book. <laughs> it's not like a spoiler. No, don't. I wiped the book from my mind so I could experience Villeneuve's vision. Oscar Isaac dies. Anyway. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> plays the father. Let's play the father. Spoilers. Um, the movie ends after the, the, the quick duel that he has with the Fremen, the one Fremen. It was like, I'm going to really? test you. Yes. He's like, I don't want to kill you. And they have the fight and he just stabs him. You're like, well, I guess I guess you're with us now. And just the movie ends. I was like, oh, okay. You could honestly feel like it was by the time the movie ended, it was 3 a.m. You could oh, feel people in the room were just so done with the movie because everyone, it was basically like an army of Shalaman fans. There was like 600 of them. And like barely anyone applauded when the title came out. They were like, hey, yeah. Well, Timothy Shalomé. Yeah. <laughs> just you could feel the energy pick up again. But just people were so done with it. Nothing happens. It takes two and a half hours or a little bit more than two and a half hours to tell you what the Lynch version does in almost two hours with way less excitement. A lot of more dull slog, boring dialogue scenes of just bureaucracy and politics. Um, beautifully shot, 
yes. Great effects, like man, the effects are truly insane. I was watching, I was like, those sandworms look real, <laughs> looks yeah, great. The sandworm. Yeah, uh, but that's almost a given nowadays. I mean, cool effects, it's like, yeah, they have cool effects, but they just don't care about anything here. Um, which is unfortunate. I was just bored, and the, and the villains, especially like, <laughs> I mean, Baron Harkonnen is a, is a caricature in the Lynch version. He's just flo- floating around. <laughs> it just looks awful. He has all this, like a plague on his face. Just, <laughs> just flesh hanging off of him. Um, but it's it's charming. It's memorable. Meanwhile, Stellan Skarsgård is like two scenes in the new one. Dave Bautista plays the Stink character. He's in like two scenes and does nothing. The only, honestly, my two favorite characters in the film the mother of Paul Atreides, uh, Lady Jessica, who's played by Rebecca Ferguson, because there she feels like a real character closer to the book. I think she's great in it. <laughs> and the other one, it's the it's the friend, the Duncan Idaho, who's played by Jason Momoa. And it's fun because it's Jason Momoa being himself. So he just comes on screen. He's like, hey, Timothée, come here, bro. Just a little fist bump. And they're like, oh, a character, life, oh, emotions, feelings. <laughs> so, you know, like I was reading all the tweets of, of hearing you talk about it. I, I have one of my professors from uni. I follow him on Twitter and he was saying the same thing. Like, Dune looks so boring. I was like, well, you know, it kind of is. People are going insane for it. So I don't know. Maybe I don't know anything about cinema, I guess, <laughs> because people are loving it. I, I, um, yeah, it's, I mean, obviously, I've only seen the trailers. Uh, I will be watching it this month, though, which was why there was some confusion over what I was writing my feature on. Yeah. I got 600, I got 600 words into that and I thought, uh oh, am I including <laughs> the wrong film? Is it the right one? <laughs> but yeah, I will be watching it, but I'm not holding my breath for it i'm not excited i'm watching it out of a duty to my job not not passion and it's it's not because i don't like the cast it's not because i don't like the maneuver i'm ambivalent at best on a lot of them it just doesn't look like inspired if you compare the the vividity and the colors and the tone and the style of the lynch feature and the the stuff that i've seen of this one um it's night and day the difference. It's and it's not a good difference. It's obviously the eighties standard is very different for sci-fi now that we've sort of breached into the future. But there is a timeless sense to some of that stuff, like Star Wars, like parts of David Lynch's Dune that do, you know, they they still look good. And my worry with the upcoming one, which I think it's like on the twenty second over here. I know it's mm. out in a lot of Europe, but Britain sort of severed itself from that, and ever since then we've suffered. Um, but I think, <laughs> uh, yeah, so it comes out then, and it, it doesn't look like a film that's going to be memorable. I think, especially now that it's, I'm starting to go back to the cinema, it's like 18 months since I've been. Mm. And we were talking, again, we were talking about this before the podcast started, the, the sort of cinema culture, especially where I'm from, in like the sort of the northern parts of England, it's, it's non-existent. We have two chain cinemas, which are showing James Bond and Paw Patrol, the movie, and that's it. Which is a shame, because while that new James Bond film was very good and that Paw Patrol film was surprisingly alright, there's not much variety. Uh, 
you know, two films and that's it from the cinema. And I, I'm not really inclined to see it, see June at the cinema, to be honest. It's one of those films where I'll probably go to the cinema to see it because nobody in the North will want to see it and the screenings will be empty. But it's one of those films where it's like, I wouldn't mind waiting for it to come on Blu-ray. I wouldn't mind watching it at home. I wouldn't really give a shit. I don't care what Villeneuve says. Like, you know, money's money at the end of the day. I'm giving him money either way by buying his shit film on Blu-ray and watching it in the fucking cinema. My issue with it, though, is that it's just... I don't enjoy the cinema. I, I feel like I'm going off on a tangent here. I just need to get this on, off of my Go for it. Go for environment. it. So I went to No Time to Die. See it in the cinema. It was the first time I've been in the cinema since I saw the Will Ferrell adaptation of Force Majeure, which was a, a classic. <laughs> the memories. Film. What was it called? Downhill. Um, I do not miss the smell of the cinema. I do not miss the prices of their shit food. I do not miss people stealing the plastic straws and then forgetting they're in their pocket and sitting on them, rendering them useless. <clears throat> I don't miss the chairs that are really just awful to sit on. They're not small, they're just bad and they creak when you sit back. I don't miss the commute I have to take to get to a cinema. It's like uh, uh, I think when I lived at university, it was 35 minutes on a train to get to the closest good cinema. Jesus. There was one that I lived th there was one literally up the hill from my first year accommodation. They showed last Christmas for a year and a half. So it wasn't as if I was missing much. Um, <laughs> now that I'm living elsewhere it, to get to the cinema it's either a bus ride on for 40 minutes to spend i'm not joking you 35 pound to go and see a film or i get a train which is half an hour and fair enough it's a view so it's 4.99 but they're not showing anything because there's nothing out in the northeast no titan because there's no audience for it no anthony bourdain or alex ferguson documentaries because they were released in streaming Mm. No Time to Die is the big release for the north of England, and that'll be it. June will have showcases, but it won't be shown much. It'll be one of those things where it's like it's on at 6pm or 9am, and that'll be it. And it's it, it's why I hit the cinema. It's just the, the ease of access for the cinema is not a possibility, not because they're far away, but because they're not showing anything. And that's been a problem even since before COVID. That's mm. just something cinemas don't do up here. And it's because they're chains and they're obviously going to show what's popular, what's going to make them money. They're not going to show independent art house stuff. But even the independent art house cinema that I used to go to, one, it's shut down now, I think. And two, they did not show those in the first place because they knew that they would not make money. I think uh, the two times I went to that cinema, I saw If Beale Street Could Talk and Rocket Man because they weren't playing at the chain cinemas near me. And I, sp I spent, I think, £18 for my ticket to see Rocket Man. And that wasn't with food or drinks or anything. It's um, it's so expensive to see films, and it's why it I prefer is, yeah. physical media, and it's why I prefer you know Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, sort of stuff like that. I don't usually use Netflix that much, but when I do need it, it's there. It's very accessible. It's very quick, mm. and it's just so much easier than watching like. June on the big screen where it's going to be like a solid two out of five. I've spent three hours of my day just getting there and then another two to get back after I watch the film. It's like the, the cinema for me is not uh, just sort of, oh, I'll pop at the cinema. It's it's a literal, I have to take a day out to see it. It's, it's commitment. It's rarely, it's rarely worth it. And it's why, especially because of COVID, 
with Rotterdam Film Festival. Mm. That was fantastic because everything was just released. It was trickled through a streaming platform and it was so easy. You could pause, you could, I mean, I don't like to pause films when I watch them, when I sit down and watch them, I'm watching them. But it was nice to have the opportunity to go, all right, I'm going to watch this at this time and then this at that time because I worked that around my university schedule. And it's just such a headache to go and see films that aren't even going to be that good. And it's difficult to make it a financially or even just physically sound decision because there's so much... Like, you can see the shelves behind me. I know people listening can't. But I've got more than enough to crack through for the next few years. Why would I go and see something new? Because by the time I've cracked through all those, the new stuff that's coming out will be on physical release and I can just get it from there. The only thing that makes me watch new films, and I don't know if you saw how many films I watched it from 2020. It was, I think it was 306. Huh. The only reason I do that is because most of them are relevant. People are talking about them. And if it were not for Clapper, and if it were not for Spark Sunderland and stuff that I write for, I just wouldn't watch many new releases because most of them are shit and most of them don't even play in the cinemas near me so I, what's the point the burden of, of a film critic um <laughs> that's honestly my time seemed like a joke but that's actually why i never really tried to be a film critic because i, I did try watching all of the movies i could from one year it was like jesus there's so much garbage to go through yeah, and i don't want to do it's... that to myself i think i i mean I'm definitely a workaholic and it was sort of presented to me rather than me acknowledging mm. it where it was like, I don't know if you've seen my letterbox diary for like April through to September of last year where it's like four films a day with reviews and looking back on that, the actual reviews are not good. Not because <laughs> I was working too much, but because my writing has improved since then. So it feels like all that time was just sort of, all right, now I need to watch those again, re-review them. <laughs> but it's, I'm very lucky that I do make a living from this now mm. for, for a short period of time sort of that will end soon but while I can do it I'm trying to do as much as I can and I've stretched myself too thin and it doesn't help when I have to plan my day around what Villeneuve wants me to see and where at because he doesn't want me watching his films on a particular screen size I don't even own a TV in my room. I, I have two monitors. So watching on a TV is not going to be possible. I've got, a, I don't know how many inches this monitor is, but it's big enough for David Lynch's June. It's certainly big enough for the moves. He'll make do. Uh, <laughs> no, it's, like, I don't know. I, I would say that of all the movies that one can watch on the big screen, this is almost the one you have to see on the big screen. But they honestly say wouldn't say the train. that's the thing. But I wouldn't say anyone has to see it on the big screen. I wouldn't say Naturally, everyone has to yeah. see it as well. If I lived um, somewhere like America or somewhere with good film culture, naturally I would go and see these films on the big screen. It's just a, a, a literal impossibility when none of the cinemas are showing the film. It was. I remember wanting to see a hidden life on the big screen, um, and there was one screening of it. And it was 20 miles away. And I was Jesus. considering it. It's like, that's just not... I, I absolutely love that film. But I wasn't going to spend what would have been essentially... It's. I'll give a better example, actually. The French Dispatch is getting a special screen and a day before it comes out uh, at the Tyneside Cinema. For me to watch that logically, 
I would have to book a hotel. I would have to stay in the city for the night. And then I'd have to pay for my ticket. I'd have to pay for food. It would probably cost me about £100 just to see the French Dispatch. And the issue there is, well, it's only an early screen and you can see it again afterwards. It's not showing anywhere after that. That's it. Still it's, not the in, it's not showing in the chain cinemas. It's not showing in the independent cinemas. It's that screening and that's it. So French Dispatch is very much an online thing for me. It's going to be going to have to see it on VOD. Um, which is sort of becoming more consistent now, especially because of COVID, but I don't mm. think it'll let up because this was an issue, like I said earlier, this was an issue, especially for the Northeast, before COVID, where I would want to see a film, but I would have to wait for it to come online. Stuff like The Lighthouse wouldn't get released here. Um, really big films that were nominated for Academy Awards were just not shown. I remember when I first moved to uni, the only films that were shown over like the Oscar period were Green Book and Bohemian Rhapsody. That was it. <laughs> The rest of them had to be online screeners. It had to be sourcing them elsewhere. And it's a shame because when two years down the line, it's out of the public eye, it's not discussed anymore. You get something like Ad Eternity's Gate on Netflix. And it's like, well, this would have been handy two years ago. And even then, stream is just a whole new issue because there's some films that get released in North American Netflix, but don't in the UK for a long, long time. It's just such a, a mess and it makes cinema viewing very difficult and it's especially difficult because it's my job, which is even worse. Yeah. This so. is making me rethink all the times I've complained about <laughs> my situation with going to the movies and <laughs> feels not being shown here. Say, so I think this has never been that bad, Jesus. <laughs> uh. and, and I think Jack would mention it as well. North, North, Northern cinema is just really difficult. It's like going to London for a festival is such a big commitment. Mm. And it's like, good grief. Even if London's in the same country, it's still like four hours on a train down there, arranging hotel rooms, it's arranging all this stuff. And I would love to do an in-person festival. It's just not, not something the North can offer. <laughs> I know Glasgow did a festival, but it had no films, which is ironic. <laughs> It is actually ironic. Ah, Jesus. Anyway, yeah. The, 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 skip the around the big screen time. It's not worth it. <laughs> it's not worth it. And watch I'm it on really the phone. Still... <laughs> in spite <laughs> on the of uh, telephone. In spite of Villeneuve. Say like, yeah. Well. Even going to the cinema, they don't print off your tickets physically anymore. I always keep my ticket. And it's such a small thing to be annoyed about, but I'm not having the last cinema ticket I own downhill. Not a chance. It's like downhill underwater. It's like, no, no. Today I had my first physical ticket in like oh, over wow. a year because of the, because of we, because usually I used to like book the tickets and today it was very impromptu go into the cinema. Yeah. So I have an actual physical ticket because for some reason, like the, the actually the, the multiplex chain that's near me is owned by the, by view. Like it's oh, the same okay. company they ate it up some some years ago, so it's part of view now. Um, and for some reason, now that there's they started doing it before the pandemic a little bit, and now they're doing always. You have to buy the ticket for the movie at the bar of the cinema. Yes, yeah, we have that here. Which is why I think yeah, 
you have all the booths at the entrance that were just lovely, where you could just queue up, get your ticket, and then maybe go to the bar. Meanwhile, now you have yeah. the bar where you get the tickets, and they give you a receipt. Mm-hmm. And it's horrible. I want the ticket. A receipt isn't a ticket. <laughs> I want the ticket. They, um, so the, the weird change that the view near me made was that you're no longer allowed to buy food over the counter. You have to use the ticket machine. So... I've never used something so difficult in my life. It's like, I just wanted a plain hot dog. I don't like ketchup. I want to take the ketchup off. You're not allowed. You have to order the food, take the ticket, and then run to the counter and say, I don't want ketchup on this, please. No ketchup. Because they don't have an option for it because it's been implemented so poorly. But if you're buying a hot dog at the cinema, then you've, you've no right to complain. You're just part of eight pounds. So, And I think that's another thing as well. It's like... Uh, the, the tickets are really cheap, granted. It's four ninety nine a film, which is really good. It's good variety. <laughs> it's like, I remember summer 2019, me and my pal would always go to the cinema every Wednesday because it was two for one on her car insurance deal. So it would be like £2.50 each, great. The selection then even was, it, it was a lot of shit for like Men in Black International yesterday, stuff like that. It was really bad. But at least there was more on. And I don't, I don't know what the shift has been between is it because there's less coming out? Is it because the cinema chains are reevaluating what is financially viable for them to show? Probably. I have no idea. But what I do know is that it should not mean they're allowed to charge £8 for a hot dog. And it was not very big. It was like, you know, those tinned hot dogs you can get like eight for one pound, like one of those in a dry bread bun. It's like that was what I used to eat it my first year of uni I would just have a tin of hot dogs for my tea I felt like a student again so that was nice but I'm old and withered now and I can't survive on hot dogs anymore <laughs> oh that's a that's a that's a lovely note to end on the conversation hot dogs and nothing else Jesus oh I blame Villeneuve for forcing people to go back to the cinema when they could have good hot dogs at home to watch his movie. Exactly. Um, Why do I have to go to the cinema? I've got everything I need at home. If I could just live... I bought a desk for my bed. (laughs) It's... Do you know why? Because when I wake up, the second I wake up, I can just start working. Incredible. I can just crack away at film. Revolutionary. Revolutionary. Also because the MacBook battery is that warm when it's streaming things, it burns my legs and I'm really concerned. So, desk. It's an old MacBook. Uh, well, now well, it's colder, it's actually nice to have the battery in here. It's like, yeah, I'll touch it. Just, oh, <laughs> warms me up a little bit. It keeps me warm during the winter. Um, oh, God, that's the benefits uh, of building a computer, I suppose. It's, um, it's under my desk like a little heat generator. Keeps you company. Anyway... <laughs> Um, let's go uh, to the closing segment of the best scene and character for book and film um, since we're on subject let's go for, for Dune favorite character from the book favorite character from the film and favorite scenes if there's any <laughs> oh god that's, that's a, a loaded set of questions there um, I feel like the obvious answer is also the sort of best one to go with I do like Paul Atreides not, not for him as a character, but as kind of like what what he represents, what what his drive is, especially in the book. 
I think Herbert, that's what he signifies so incredibly well that it's hard to pick another character because a lot of those characters kind of like thrown at the wall, see what sticks, and then the rest of them come together as kind of like a big clash of political and economic values. And Atreides is just at the heart of it. He's sort of the guiding torch between that all. Uh, I feel it's, it's hard to step away from that because he's so integral to what Herbert was showing. Um, and as far as best parts of the book go, it's it's the ending that I mentioned where he, it's the realisation of what he's done and that he's emperor now and that it's there's no turning back even though he needs to. I, I love that sort of ending. It's kind of the, the rejection of the superhero dynamic. It was Herbert said... Um, if I had the tab open, I would have recited it word for word. It was something like, um, I've, I'm breaking down this hero stereotype and the archetype of it, but you are merely participating in it. Something incredible like that. And it was very profound, but I've just butchered it there. Rightly so. Um, as far as the scenes in the film go, I couldn't point a finger at one of them. I, I do think it's sort of... <laughs> I have a soft spot for... Um, uh, what you call it, Patrick Stewart, who's yeah. got like long-ish hair, but you can tell he's bald. Um, as far it's as interesting that, makeup, hair and makeup for him. It's really odd, yeah. Um, but I don't think there's a specific scene. I do like some of the really, I don't know what scene it is, but there's like a really intense close-up of like, like a needle, and it's like just spinning, and there's narration over it. It's like, oh, we must do this now. It feels very claustrophobic um but i think the style and the visualization of lynch's adaptation while strong is troubled and i, yeah. I it's expected though i don't think that's anything we can hold against lynch because he's he's given it a really good crack yeah. um and a lot of that comes through positively i i'd say he he does good with what he has because there is no way you can cram June down into just two hours. But he, he tries, and I, I have a lot of respect for him for that. Yeah. And I don't agree. Like, there are some people who, who say that he, like, he should go back and, and give us his definitive version and re-edit it. And I'm like, no, just don't let, don't let me go there. Um, let that sleeping dog lie. <laughs> truly. It's very heartbreaking in, in his book. Um, Room to Dream, that's the name of the autobiography. He talks about Dune, of course, and it's very heartbreaking because he says something along the lines of when you when you make a movie you believe in and people don't like it and it gets destroyed, you die once. When you make a movie you don't believe in and it gets destroyed, you die twice. With Dune, he died twice. Oh, yeah. That's heartbreaking, Jesus. But with Firewalk with me, he died once. It's <laughs> 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 just really, I was like, oh no, someone give him a hug, poor man. Uh, I and, feel bad for the guy. Yeah. Um, so I, I actually pretty much agree with everything you said. Um, I do really like Lady Jessica in the book, um, probably because I'm projecting the idea, because I read it after watching the new version. And I was picturing oh. it with Rebecca Ferguson in mind. I was like, <laughs> yeah, okay, I can see that better. Um, but she's an interesting character. It just kind of vanishes in the film. Like after she gives, there's like this montage that skips a lot of things. I was like, ah, things happen. The sister is born, blah, blah, blah. It's like, okay, I don't know. Okay. Um, but I do like that character. Um, because of the, the mother figure is also very protective 
Um, we didn't talk about the voice, that whole thing of like mind controlling people, which is neat. It's implemented in an odd way in the movie. Um, the Villeneuve version definitely has better action scenes as well. I'll give him that. It's not. It's not, especially when they have the when they're having the sword fights with the shield around them. Uh, that looks almost like Tron, and not in a good way. It looks like Tron. Um, but but yeah. Anyway, um, I do like Lee Jessica. I do agree with you. The ending, the ending ties everything together, um, which is something that doesn't work in the new in the adaptation. Um, but it works so well in that, um, especially knowing that there's sequels where you see the aftermath of everything that happened yeah. with Atreides and just another uprising and people going against him where he becomes a new emperor um, that has to be overthrown. It's the tragic nature of politics, just an endless cycle. Um, yeah, and I think it's it's a shame that none of the adaptations so far have had the time to, to understand that. Oh, maybe part two of the Villeneuve one. Who knows? I don't, I don't know. We both know. <laughs> I almost hope they don't make it. I don't know. I find it funnier to have people think... Oh, that's the, To have people like have the ending of the first one be just him going on off in the desert with the Freeman. Fremen, whatever. Just kind of like, okay. That's, that's such an okay. odd choice. Um yeah, and if, if someone is going into the movie wanting Zendaya, he's going to be so disappointed. Um, I remember reading an interview with her before watching the movie where she was like, even though I spent four days on the set, I had a lovely time making it. I was like, oh, she's not going to be in the <laughs> film, is she? He's like, yep. Uh, you know that like he has visions of the Fremen in the Lynch version? In the Villeneuve one, he has visions from, from the first scene. It opens with with um, it's very streamlined in an effective way in that sense um, but he has visions of the Fremen and this shows the same shot of Zendaya like 10 times throughout the entire film until he actually meets her at the end <laughs> and I'm like so imagine being a Zendaya fan <laughs> just oh, getting one shot does she uh, have any fans after Malcolm and Marie? yes oh, oh, you'd be, oh. I was scared I was just when they were having the press screening for Dune, fans gathered outside of this of the press room. Um, I was hearing those screams from like five hundred meters away. I mean, hundreds of people just clam, just mush together. She's definitely talent. I just haven't seen anything with real heart or soul from any of her projects yet. It's like Space Jam 2, Spider-Man, June. This, this is not going to change much for you, then. <sighs> oh, not even uh, The Greatest Showman. Oh, yeah, she was in Greatest Showman. <coughs> she was in Super Buddies, but that was directed DVD, I'm afraid, because oh. the, the Buddies anthology still marches on. Jesus. Um, for the scene, I do love the riding sandworm scene. That's where the film comes together for me. <laughs> it um, comes together, does it? Yeah, I mean, it's also as I ever read McGill. That's when he, he plays a bigger part, and I do love the guy a lot. Yeah. So, so just him and Kyle on the on the thing. And, and like you mentioned, like I do like Paul Atreides in this one. 
Um, he is. He feels like a real character in the film because of the actor. I think, even though it was one of his first roles, I believe Cal McLachlan is great as always. Um, not the greatest performance in this, but you know, when he's smiling and uh, doing the things like, yeah, I'd follow him. Yeah, he's I wouldn't follow likeable, Timothée. He's such a likable presence. He is not just he in the is. film, but just in the real world, and I think that's infectious, especially for June. It's like. The guy's having a really good time. It's a big project for him. Yeah. He crops up in the strangest projects, and I love that about him. The Tesla biopic, not really biopic. <laughs> what the fuck was that film? <laughs> like, there, there's some films that come out. They just look back on them, and they think, was it even a real movie? Did it just invent it? <laughs> Ethan Hawke and... Kyle McLaughlin stabbing each other with ice cream cones does not feel real, but it certainly happened. Uh, just, yeah. I wonder how many people actually saw that film. Not many. I know I'm one of them. <laughs> yeah, it's, me, it's... and Jack are three of them. That makes them a decent percentile. <laughs> We're like 20% of this audience. I don't think neither of us loved it in any way I think Jack liked it but I did not um, I hated it I thought you know Jim Gaffigan being in any film is sort of just off-putting at best I should have been more fun for how anachronistic it was yeah. but anyway Tesla anyway, enough about Tesla let's move on to it the it book and it's oh. chapter one and two and you're free to do whatever you want with the movies just one movie just both to? movies we, we do yes Them's the rules. <laughs> I think for the book, I think it'll be what's his name? The... <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down. Uh, the, 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 the name of it? No, no. The the big climax at the end, I really like the actual final fight against it. I think that's so well developed and the fluttering between past and present and all the values that these characters hold dear. It's I was a bit cautious about the build-up, but it, it's deserving, and the payoff makes sure of that. And I, I, I really like that. I thought it was fantastic for the book. For the film, not so much. I think the strongest part of the film is either the very brief scenes between Beverly and her father in the first one, or... Um, yeah, actually, that's it. <laughs> There's, I was trying my absolute best to think of something good about the second film. I don't have it in my heart to say anything good about it because re-watching it was just fucking atrocious it's just jump scare here character arc there it's all the same all the way through i suppose the king cameo is okay and i do like the bit where pennywise descends from the heavens with a pot of balloons to bill Hader, and all he really does is mock him and that's it that's it it's like yeah <laughs> it's fucking fantastic yeah. But yes, it's, you, don't, um, you don't like the Henry Bowers scene where he just pops up in the bathroom and then he just leaves. <laughs> it's a classic, obviously. It's okay. <laughs> I was thinking, like, I was, I was rewatching it, and there's just a moment like he, he breaks out of the asylum, whatever, and he gets in the car with the corpse of the friend. I'm just kind of oh, like, yeah. oh, this could be like a fear and loathing in Las Vegas retelling. <laughs> it's just the two of them coming to Vegas, him and the corpse friend. That I'd watch that. So more. It would be so much better. It would be far more preferable as well. But it was not to be. 
Well, for me, in the book, I do like as a as a character, the whole group is is fascinating. But I do like Bill, in a way. I'm like, you know what? Yeah. Because because he has the constant, he is the uh, the self insert of Stephen King because he needs to have a writer in there. Um, yeah. Talking about stories and the importance of storytelling, but it's 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 effective, um, and and the fact that the inciting incident is the disappearance of Georgie in the book, which I do still think it's pro- maybe the, I mean it's the classic scene. Uh, that's what I'm, I think of the most in the book, um, not just because of how important the iconography is for the movies as well, but just in itself it works really well. The balancing tone of, of of horror and light humor, it works. It's a great scene. It does. It does. Um, in the movies, like chapter one, uh, I do really love Beverly. I think Sophia Lewis does a terrific job playing her, and I agree with you. Like the scenes between her and her father are the best ones, because because it's it's real horror, like the horror of abuse, the horror of domestic violence. Of, of, of horrible things that happen between fa- fathers and children. Um, and it's unfortunate that, that that feeling of the cycle of abuse repeating itself is absent from chapter two. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah. But I love the bloody bathroom scene where she's just looking into the sink and everything fills up with blood and the father just comes in and he doesn't notice or see the blood. Um, because it's, it's, it's just one of those visuals that just sticks in your mind. Yeah. Um, but to be positive about it, chapter two, um, <laughs> I do like I do like the <laughs> it's a bit of a cheat, but the the Richie and Eddie combo I do like that one because it's like it the nice dynamic, yeah. It's they change it from the book because in the book they never outright say that um, Richie was uh, gay they never say that explicitly um let's say it's implied in a way but in the movie they 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 take the subtext and make it text and it's all right like bill Hader does a good enough job as we mentioned um he's one of the highlights of the film yeah he's the crowning achievement of that film is that he is unfazed by the shit around him (laughs) and i i he is not paying attention at all and he gives a great performance yeah, and even James Ransone, in a, in a way, it's, 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 it works with Bill Hader. Like, the two of them together really yeah. work. Um, and the, the last moment where he's just carving the letters again in the woods, like, oh, it's it's cute. It's just like, that's it good. Um, but as, as far as scenes go, like, there's not many good scenes in that. We did mention the opening that's rather effective on its own. Um, yes, I don't like that we get another Georgie scene with the little girl. Because it's like, why? <laughs> why? Because this... the past replicates the future, my friend. And but that's... they could have... <laughs> make that the opening scene then. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Just don't put it at like the 15 minute mark for a girl we, we barely saw in the opening scene. Anyway, um, my one of the best scenes that always stands out to me when I think about this movie is <laughs> when they defeat Pennywise by just screaming <laughs> at him. <laughs> you're a clown. You're a mimic. You're a, you're a fucking clown. You're an elderly <laughs> lady, and he just becomes a puddle. He's like, oh, I'm little. <laughs> just, oh, this, I'm little. Just I don't know. It's just those like for some reason those things they don't really necessarily creep me out, but they just stand out in my mind so much. Where you have like yeah. the, the 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 baby adult. Um, 
I would say um, Eli Roth, um, a director that I also not unintentionally met at Venice because he um, he went by over us in the line, like he cut in line in front of me and a friend. We were going to the last night in Soho premiere and he cut in front of us. <laughs> like, what a fucking asshole. Um, <laughs> and the elderly Italian lady screamed at him for not respecting the queue, which was oh, nice. No but yes, he deserves it. He but deserves anyway, absolutely. Like, honestly, if I'd, I already disliked Eli Roth enough, now I have a real life reason for disliking him. But, but I have to thank him. <laughs> I have to thank him for making one of the most horrifying uh, things I've ever seen in a film, which is Jack Black's head on a baby's body in the house with the clock on its walls. And just those images just stick with me. I avoided just, that film on purpose. Just watch this clip. Just just look for baby Jack Black. It's like a baby, but with the head of Jack Black. I will <laughs> not be watching that. <laughs> it's just that's that's what I was thinking about during this scene. It I was kind of like, yeah, it's like baby Jack Black, just little Pennywise, just crying, and they cut his heart out. <laughs> Uh, that's when he goes oh, full Jesus. Stephen King and that's when it doesn't work but in a weird yes. way it works yeah. and I would say just closing remark Mike Flanagan knows how to adapt Stephen King because he knows what's utter bullshit that's never going to work in a film that needs to be cut <laughs> he wouldn't yeah. have put that in the movie if he directed it he would have gutted it Jesus anyway um both it and Dune, as books and as films, can be found rather easily everywhere um, to rent, to buy, libraries, all the sequels, all the new versions, re-editions. Like, you, you're going to read them and find them rather easily. Um, I think they're streaming. I know it, it Chapter 2 is streaming on Netflix Canada. If anyone's from Canada and wants to rewatch it for some reason, <laughs> they hurt themselves a bit. Um, but... Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. It was a lovely, lovely good time, lovely good chat. Next week, we are releasing the Stephen King special where we'll be talking about the man himself. Um, the good Jakob Flash will be joining us for that discussion. And next month, we are going to be talking about, again, two odd choices of books, which are Red Dragon and Great Expectations. <laughs> Oh shit, yeah, I've accidentally read both of those already. <laughs> accidentally. Oh. I genuinely, like, I finished Red Dragon a few days ago. I was like, oh, I was reading this for some reason. What was it? It's like, oh, now, I see. Now there's a reason. Um, I haven't, I honestly, weird thing, that we close the episode, but just, I've read Silence of the Lambs years before watching the movie. Um, and now I'm watching, I'm reading Red Dragon without having seen the new remake. I've already seen Manhunter, though. But we'll get oh, into it next month. God, we've got to watch the bloody... Anthony Brett Hopkins. Ratner. Oh. Brett Ratner, I think, made it. So, yeah, we have to. We have to. Anyway... Why didn't we pick better books? It's done. like, oh yeah, we can talk about it. It's a good book. Oh no, you have to rewatch it, chapter two. I've got to watch the Ethan Hawke Great Expectations. Oh Jesus, oh. there's so many of those to actually watch. 
We'll pick just one or got, two. At least he's got pulp on the soundtrack. Uh, anyway, where, where can people find you, Ewan? Uh, they can find the me on Letterboxd at Ewan Gledo, E-W-A-N-G-L-E-A-D-O-W, and Twitter as well, at Ewan Gledo, with that same spelling. Because apparently my name is very difficult to spell. I should know what the postman thinks so. Um, <laughs> and you can find my writing on a cult-following clapper, uh, Geek Show Spark Sunderland, which is the new thing I'm working on for the next hey. year. And that's it, I think. Yeah. I've got too many places that I've written for that I just forget. And it's like, I'm so sorry to snub you, but there's no time. Your presence is above and beyond everywhere now. I've stretched myself far and thin. And it's I'm like tired. an octopus. It's like Spectre. <laughs> it's everywhere. Oh. <laughs> well... <laughs> Well, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at NikiBear97 and on Letterboxd at Nicolo Grasso. You can watch my videos, my short films on YouTube and Vimeo at Enjoy the Movies. You can read both of us stuff on Clapper, as you mentioned. Um, you can listen to Clappercast and Uncut Gems podcast, also Clapper podcasts that are very fun, so I highly recommend those. You can subscribe to Patreon to you know support Clapper and get some good extra bonus episodes every month. Just a lot of bank for your buck, just $2 a month. And you can also follow us as the podcast on Instagram and Twitter. Instagram, Death by Adaptation pod. Twitter, only Death Adaptation. So you can, you can, you can follow us there. Stay in touch, keep in track on everything. Tell us what you think of the show. You can even e- email us if you want to at yes. deathbyadaptationpod at gmail.com all the, all the angry emails about uh, Eraserhead aimed at you and <laughs> yeah, Nick fields the emails I'm too busy dampening the fire of the ABBA consequences <laughs> which are still a week later ongoing Jesus, that, that's commitment that's, again, that's like they're they feral beasts, these mid 50 year olds Stop. Oh man. Well, thank you very, very much for listening, and we'll see you very soon. Bye bye. Can't see me waving, can they? <laughs>